This episode is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked me not to read an ad, so that's what I'm not doing. Enjoy the show! You can look back on the Second World War and point out certain events, turning points, and technologies that led to the eventual Allied victory over the Axis powers. But sometimes you can't help but wonder about the many what-if scenarios. What if Japan had actually coordinated with the Nazis and attacked Russia instead of Pearl Harbor? What if Spain's fascist Franco hadn't been dealing with civil war aftermath and joined the Axis? What if D-Day had failed? But there's one chilling what-if in the shadow of them all. An unthinkable scenario that would have changed the course of the war. And one that some researchers think was just this side of a hair's width from happening. What if the Nazis had developed technology capable not only of anti-gravity flight, but of inflicting horrible damage to living things, and possibly even time travel? Such things rarely fall in the realm of believability, but the story of Deglaka, the bell, has enough connections to top Nazi military figures, scientists, and locations to make you pause on hitting the dismissal button. Add this to the reports from a couple journalists and authors who have connected some dots over the years and sprinkle in some ominous photos of its supposed testing ground and concepts, and you have one sweet-smelling conspiracy cake baking. We'll let it bake in the oven of scrutiny and see if it rises or burns as we take a look at Deglaka, the Nazi bell, on this episode of Blurry Photos. Hey everybody, I'm your host, David Flora. Welcome to the show. Pretty pumped for this one. It's got a great blend of history, weird science, and mystery to it. I think you'll enjoy the journey of learning about the bell, the players involved, and ultimately the critical thinking we're going to be doing about it. Real quick, I'm also excited to announce that I'll be attending AlienCon this June in Los Angeles. And not only that, I'll be moderating a panel on UFOs and podcasting there. It's going to be really neat. The panel includes Derek Hayes from Monsters Among Us, John and Brent from Hysteria 51, Ryan Sprague from Somewhere in the Skies, Chris Cogswell from Mad Scientist Podcast, and Ben Bolin from Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. It's a heck of a lineup. AlienCon is June 21st through the 23rd, though we haven't heard just yet when our panel will be. I'll make sure to keep you guys up to date, so be sure and like the Blurry Photos Facebook page for updates in between shows. I think we're also going to arrange a podcaster meetup somewhere in LA while we're down there, so... You can come and hang out with us, probably grab a frosty brew of your choice whilst doing so. We'll just hang out, talk, meet up. It'll be fun. I'll let you know when that gets arranged. But either way, I'll be in LA that weekend and should be a blast. Keynote speaker is none other than our favorite walking chia pet, Giorgio Sukalos. Will I be able to meet him? Is such a thing even possible? Yes, it is. I doubt it. I bet you can't get within 20 yards of him without paying 50 bucks. That's okay. I can still get a pick of his hair over the crowd. Speaking of things that may or may not be possible, how about this wild story of a Nazi superweapon, or supercraft, or superproject with a K? A secret piece of technology that harnessed the laws of physics or maybe even broke them? Yes, please. I want to know more about that. If you followed the adventures of the aforementioned Georgie boy, even he's taken a look at this topic in Ye Old Ancient Aliens. It's a thought-provoking historical enigma that has been showing up more and more over the years, and boy, are there a lot of questions about it. In this episode, I hope to address some of those questions, including what it supposedly was, who was involved with it, and what possibly happened to it. 
I'll also take a look at the major sources for the story, and then we can try and look at it from different angles and run the old magnifying glass over the info, see if anything stands out. So clean that M1, spark up a smooth, satisfying Chesterfield, and get those Nazi punching fists ready. We're heading to WW2. What with the help of fire's great power, in this deep pit our hands have framed, high on the belfry of the tower, in mighty tones shall be proclaimed. In ages far beyond the morrow, a voice for many shall ring out, and it will mourn with those in sorrow, and join the choir of the devout. Red Army swept into German-occupied Poland, flattening back Germany's eastern defenses like a rolling pin on swastika-shaped dough. In the dawn of a new day east of the Vistula, Russian armored forces attacked Praga in Poland in their drive on Warsaw. Colonel General Kosakov and his staff order a barrage of intense gunfire. Now the infantry move into battle. With the outer defenses of Praga smashed, one of Stalingrad's heroes, Marshal Rokosovsky, visits headquarters here near Praga while tanks and troops push into the town. Polish regiments, fighting with the Russians, march ahead of the army through Praga's streets and receive a warm welcome. On the road to Warsaw, the Russian victory at Praga foretells the day of liberation for Poland. It was spring in 1945, and Russian forces had just rolled into the modern-day Polish town of Ludwikowice Kwatski, near the Czech border. At the time, the region, known as Silesia, was under German control, Ludwikowice then called Ludwitzdorf. The Russians must have done a double-take when they stumbled upon a complex at the nearby Wenceslas mine. mine itself was said to have flooded and closed just six years prior, but there sure were signs of recent activity all around. What they found were tunnels blasted into the Owl Mountains, tunnels with rail carts, rooms, a sewage system, and wiring for huge amounts of energy consumption. And then they found more. And then they found more. It became apparent that a huge undertaking had been underway by the Germans. A project so big, it was discovered that the Third Reich had literally named it Project Hrisa, which translates to giant. The aim of the project was to build a large web of underground facilities such as bunkers, factories, labs, and passageways through the Owl Mountains near modern-day Ludwikowice, northwest up to Castle Fürstenstein now called Kshaj Castle, in Valbaj, a distance of well over 30 kilometers, or about 19 miles. The plan was to connect seven separate complexes together throughout Lower Silesia, and work was at various stages of completion when the Soviets forced the Nazis to abandon it all in 1945. Though fascinated by the scope of what lay before, the Red Army was still an occupying force, and completely gutted what was left of equipment and materials from the complexes. Unbeknownst to them, however, was what exactly had transpired in those tunnels and chambers under the mountains, and especially in the buildings and warehouses near the Wenceslas mine. 
for while the Nazis had abandoned it all with everything they could carry, and the Russians stripped out what was left, the truth of the ruined concrete structures and blasted out underground shafts remained a mystery, at least until the 90s. In 2001, a book titled Pravda o Wunderwaffe, The Truth About the Wonder Weapon, was published, supposedly shedding light on the Risa complex, but ultimately casting an even longer shadow of mystery on its remains. Polish author and journalist Igor Witkowski authored the book and diligently researched several instruments of war, which had secretly been in development by the Third Reich. His research had been jump-started in 1997, when, as he tells it, he was contacted by a, quote, certain man well-informed, even extremely, about various aspects of World War II, end quote, whose identity he kept concealed at the man's request. This man was referred to as a Polish intelligence officer in many subsequent sources, and by Witkowski himself in interviews, but in his book, he called the man an quote-unquote anonymous historian, who then proceeded to ask Witkowski if he had ever heard of a device called the bell. Witkowski hadn't, and didn't pay him much mind at first, but the details proved too tantalizing to leave alone. As he looked more into archives of various tech that was under production in the Third Reich, he began to realize that one project in particular seemed to carry more gravitas than even the infamous V-Weapon projects. And he came to this conclusion like any of us would, by looking through intelligence documents and seeing the word Kriegsentscheidend, like you do. Following the top-down assumption that top Nazi physicist Dr. Walter Gerlach would be involved in the top, top secret science project, Witkowski found an interesting correspondence between Gerlach and Hitler's secretary, Martin Bormann. Gerlach wrote to Bormann about a project in the works which might be Kriegsentscheidend, meaning decisive for the war. Witkowski found this fascinating, as the term didn't appear in the countless stacks of German documentation he had poured over in his work. He finally found one more mention in a letter provided to him by a research institute in Berlin. Written by Professor Dr. Karl Wilhelm Ramsauer, the research institute chief of the large German electrical equipment company AEG, it speaks of a secret device which was being developed at their institute, listing a few reasons as to why the project was so special, including the statement, quote, Mr. Ministerial Director Professor Dr. E. Schumann, Director of the Research Division of the Ground Forces Armament Office, has granted this project the highest level of urgency, which has been described as decisive for the war. End quote. Long story short, too late, the letter was in response to the arrest of one of the main scientists on the project, Richard Kramer, whose views only lined up with about 99% of Nazi fanaticism. He had been sentenced to prison by the Gestapo for insinuating once that the English were not the ones who started the war. How dare he? Apparently, the letter was enough to get him out of jail free, but he kind of disappeared afterwards and may or may not have passed go and collected 200 Reichsmarks. To Witkowski, the designation of decisive for the war meant he was on to something truly special, at least in terms of Wunderwaffe and if the stories of his anonymous historian were to be believed, he was onto something truly special in terms of everything ever. So what exactly was the bell, and how much longer am I going to string you along before describing it? I get it. The suspense is starting to take its toll on you. Let's get into it, because it really is quite appealing. Most wholesome is the force of fire, when man can tame and guard its ire. And from this heavenly force, man takes good help for what he molds and makes. But frightful is this power's abuse, when, from its fetters broken loose, upon its own track wantonly it roams as nature's daughter, free. 
horror when unbound and growing, fiend that no resistance stays. Through the peopled city, blowing, sweeps along the monster blades. Bitkovsky's informant described the bell to him in incredible detail. Iglaka was a nickname, and an apt one, as the device was shaped exactly like a typical church bell, made of a ceramic material with a slightly larger base pedestal, made of an unknown, heavy, hard metal. Unlike your typical church bell, however, the entire thing was around two and a half meters tall and one and a half meters in diameter. That's about eight feet tall by five feet wide. The top of it was rounded and quote, crowned with some kind of hook or fastening, end quote. And just like a gusher, the real party was on the inside. Two large, cylinder-shaped drums made of a silvery metal sat on top of each other inside it and were able to rotate around a central axis. The axis had a 20-centimeter-wide, hollow, heavy, hard metal core which ran from the bell's top to its pedestal. The outer casing could be removed for easy access to the spinning drums and stationary core inside. Trials or experiments were done by adding a substance to the core and spinning the drums. Vitkovsky described this substance, and I'll quote him directly from his book. Before each trial, some kind of ceramic, oblong container was placed in the core. It was defined as a vacuum flask. Surrounded by a layer of lead approximately three centimeters thick. It was approximately one to one and a half meters long and filled with a strange metallic substance with a violet gold hue and preserving at room temperature the consistency of slightly coagulated jelly. From the produced information, it followed that this substance was codenamed IRR0525 or IRR Serum 525 and contained, among other constituents, the thorium oxide and beryllium oxide. The name Xeron also appeared in the documentation. It was some kind of amalgam of mercury, probably containing various heavy isotopes. He goes on to say the drums also had supercooled mercury in them, and they would be spun in opposite directions at tremendous speeds. It also took a hell of a lot of electricity to power the thing. When operating, it generated a sound similar to the humming of bees in a bottle, which gave it another nickname, Bienenstock, the beehive. It also caused a number of effects to occur in the vicinity. A strong magnetic field, electrical surges enough to blow light bulbs, and a bluish glow that surrounded the device. Anyone close enough to it felt, quote, disturbances or the nervous system's operation, such as formication or pins and needles, headaches, and a metallic taste in their mouths, end quote. That's not so bad, right? Well, those were the short-term effects. Long-term, especially in early experiments, subjects suffered a range of maladies, including balance problems, sleep loss, memory loss, muscle cramps, and ulcers. But that's not all. In fact, that was after the scientists had worked to limit its effects. When testing began in the spring of 1944, five out of seven scientists working on the project died from its effects. The bell was said to have generated a field that caused, quote, the disintegration of tissue structures, gelatin, and the stratification of liquids, among others blood, into distinctly divided fractions and others, end quote. Sounds like they went how they lived, melted by weird Nazi science. About five hours after a test was done, plants around the bell lost color and became gray and lived for about another week before quickly decomposing into a greasy substance like rancid fat, but without the smell. 
and strange crystalline structures formed in liquid organic material. Tests were run in uniquely made underground rooms, which were completely covered with ceramic tiles. The bell sat in a pool of water, possibly to help cool it, and heavy rubber mats covered the floor. After each test, these mats were apparently destroyed and replaced, and the tiles were washed with a brine-like pink liquid. Eventually, and I'll circle back to this later, the bell was moved after two to three tests to a new room, and the previous room was blown up. Scientists eventually started running the experiments from a distance of 150 to 200 meters, or 490 to 650 feet away, while wearing rubber suits and helmets with red-tinted visors. Vitkovsky mentions there may have been sets of cameras and film recorders present during tests, but it's not known whether anything was successfully captured, let alone survived. It sounds like pretty powerful fundamental forces at work here. But to what end? Vitkovsky made it clear that his informant never mentioned the bell being a weapon, per se, and his research pointed towards it being a Wunderwaffe, but not really directly. It was possibly the project referred to as Kriegsentscheidend, decisive for the war, but maybe not. So what else could it have been? Third Reich scientists were certainly pursuing nuclear capabilities, so some have speculated the Bell was yet another intensive nuclear research project. The effects it produced sure sounded like radiation. The aforementioned thorium involved, which can decay into uranium, could have been a replacement for the heavy water stores that were thankfully blasted by the Allies. And the casing could have been designed to harness fusion reactions. A passage from Joseph Farrell's book, The SS Brotherhood of the Bell, mentions a connection to this, stating, quote, Rainer Karls, a German historian who recently published a book in Germany on Hitler's nuclear program, also mentioned in his book that a team of physicists from a German university in Gießen has carried out a lot of research in Ludwigowice. The result is such that there are isotopes in the construction, in the reinforcement, which can only be the result of irradiation by a strong beam of neutrons. Thus, there must have been some kind of device accelerating ions, rather heavy ones. It could be calculated what was the intensity of the radiation in 1945, and generally it was very high. End quote. Of course, you can't get very far in weird Nazi science without stepping in some vril. An imaginary energy field conceived of by novelist Edward Bulwer-Lytton, vril was related in effect to scalar energy, torsion fields, and zero-point energy, all of which have advanced physics foundations but currently seem like ways to sidestep physics in general. Vril, as an anti-gravity power source, came from science fiction, but occultists latched onto it and ran with it. Why not attach it to a speculative mystery device? Vitkovsky has started to lean towards the device being an anti-gravity generator of some type, something that would counter the effects of gravity enough to eventually apply it in a military capacity. He points to several possible indicators of this, not least of which is Walter Gerlach's expertise in magnetic fields, plasma, and gravitational physics, and his possible overseeing of the Bell Project. He even made a trip to Warsaw's Institute of Plasma Physics and Laser Microfusion, or Wippabalom, and took pictures of a plasma focus device, which looked a lot like the sketches of the Bell, only turned sideways. In the show notes, I'll link a short essay he wrote on the connections there and the related science of separating magnetic fields, plasma vortices, and theoretical physics, the concepts of which are a little heavy to tackle right now. Of course that pun was intended. One more frilly Victorian accoutrement to add to this vampire is actually one of the most famous pieces to this particular puzzle. Located near the Wenceslas mine is a strange concrete structure standing on a dodecagon-shaped pool. 
with a diameter of almost 30 meters, or 98 feet. It's comprised of 12 12-meter-high 12 pillars connected at the top by a ring of concrete with no roof or walls. Its size and arrangement has prompted the nickname The Hinge. Witkowski photographed the imposing structure and remarks in his book how it reminded him of a flytrap, a structure in aeronautics that helps test vertical takeoff and landing. That could certainly be a helpful structure for a device trying to achieve anti-gravity propulsion. And F it, while we're at it, let's just toss in a little time travel. The idea that the bell could warp space-time was briefly tossed out there in Nick Cook's 2001 book, The Hunt for Zero Point, and then teased even more in an anecdote from Henry Stevens' 2003 work, Hitler's Suppressed and Still Secret Weapons Science and Technology. In that, Stevens mentioned a man who said as a child he had heard his father talking to Nazi scientist Otto Cerny, who drew a circle of stones, quote, like a Greek temple with a ring around the top, end quote. Hinge. <clears throat> Excuse me. Above it hung something like an oscilloscope or TV screen, and through this structure, <clears throat> it's the hinge. <clears throat> Pardon me. It was possible to, quote unquote, go back and witness things, meaning observe past events. Subsequent tellings of this tale have included mirrors which serve the same purpose, and the bell itself opening a wormhole through time. As if this wasn't wild enough, some people have connected this claim to an incident that occurred on December 9th, 1965. A fireball tore through the night sky over Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, landing in some nearby woods. Though it was in the wee hours of the morning, witnesses have claimed they saw an acorn-shaped craft and that U.S. military was quick to the scene and quick to tell people to stay away. While most press reported it as a meteor, the shape and claims of apparent witnesses lead some folks to believe this was the infamous Nazi bell, which had shot forward in time and space. I would agree that a functioning time machine would have been pretty decisive for the war. The not-so-secret weapon the V-missiles and flying bombs, were already developed, but needed refinement. If only they could take that technology to the past for a head start. With the push from the Red Army in the East and the Allies in the West, testing of just such a device, ironically, ran out of time. The Battle of London is over. The German flying bomb sites in northern France and Belgium have been captured, and Hitler's not-so-secret weapon has been defeated. Captured maps, discovered at the heavily bombed launching platforms, reveal targets the Germans had marked for destruction. The Nazis found no time to assemble these parts before being driven out. Deployed deep in forests and cleverly camouflaged, the launching sites were difficult to locate. But as each new one was discovered, Allied bombers were able to put it out of action, at least temporarily. It is now revealed these incessant Allied bombings delayed the flying bomb menace by many months. Compressed air containers to force fuel into the engine were among the components discovered intact. Notices gave warning of the presence of explosives. Many of the lethal weapons turned on their perpetrators. The Pas-de-Calais is littered with the remains of those that landed or exploded moments after being projected. Barrage balloons were among the three types of defenses employed against the flying bomb. During the 80-day battle, the balloons brought down 279 of them. Anti-aircraft guns accounted for 1,500 more. Almost 2,000 flying bombs fell victim to Allied fighter planes. For the second time during this war, mighty London has shown that she can take it. 
This was the weapon on which Germany had hung her hopes for victory. That hope has been shattered. As the battle on Germany's home soil begins, the Battle of London has ended. Elements have ever hated what the hand of man created. From the cloud, rain is pouring, earth restoring. From the cloud, even so, lightnings glow. From the tower, hear the wail, tis the gale. Bloody red are the heavens, daylight ne'er such brightness shed. Riot leavens all the crowds. Dense smoke clouds. Fiery pillar, flickering, glowing. Down the street is swiftly going, like the wind so rapid growing. Hot, as if in furnace baking, glows the air. The beams are breaking. Windows rattle, posts are falling, mothers straying, children calling. Beasts are moaning, crushed and groaning. All run, save and flee in fright. Bright as daylight is the night. Witkowski wrote a vibrant tapestry of names possibly connected to the bell, including project names. Charité and Laga was the project name associated with the system to power de Glocke. Originating from the same letter from earlier which petitioned for Richard Kramer's release in 1943, it's believed work on this project was headquartered under the Charité Hospital in Berlin. The original name for the project as a whole was Project Tor, which started in January 1942. Tor, or Gate in English, was split into two projects in August of 1943. These projects were called Kronos and Laternenträger. Laternenträger, or Lanternbearer, was alluded to as being that of the old Lightbringer and Morning Star himself, Lucifer. What a glorious tie-in to good versus evil. Nazis were bad, they had a project named Lucifer, it was going to kill everybody, case closed. Let's actually shelve this one. This episode doesn't need a 30-minute tangent on biblical translations and bastardizations. That'll fit nicely in an episode on the devil. Kronos is just as evocative, especially in light of time travel talk. Kronos was the ancient Greek personification of time. However, it is not the same figure as Kronos, the titan father of Zeus. This has been confused since Kronos immemorial. So heads up. The admirably named Project Thor has also been tossed into the ring, but more than likely due to the mining of thorium in Silesia, and its refinement for possible nuclear uses, or perhaps plans for giant Tesla coils, which would suit a project named Thor nicely. The 
The names of personnel possibly involved with the bell make up a much longer list, as Vitkovsky demonstrates in his book. I'll try and briefly hit the major players before moving on to what happened to the bell and then heading on towards some final thoughts. Professor Dr. Walter Gerlach was a Nobel Prize-winning physicist well-known in his field and was heading up the Nazis' nuclear efforts towards the war's end, though he never published anything about a weapon or reactor. Being one of the most prominent scientists in Germany, especially in the field of gravitation, he was assumed to have had a hand in the Bell's development, not to mention the fact I mentioned earlier about him writing to Martin Bormann about a project decisive for the war. He was part of the group of scientists who were captured and kept and spied upon at Farm Hall in England. His conversations with fellow scientists were said to include the topics of atomic nuclei, extraterrestrial space, magnetic fields, and the Earth's gravitation. Certainly sounds bellish, given all we've discussed up to this point. Vitkovsky mentions a Dr. Elizabeth Adler being part of the research team as a mathematician from Königsberg University. Not much is known of her other than her involvement with a, quote, simulation of damping of vibrations towards the center of spherical objects, end quote. However, no record of her survived. There was a mathematician named Elizabeth Borman who enjoyed staying at the Adler Hotel in Stockholm and a lot of people have decided this has gotten confused along the way, and that's the actual person being referenced. And that sounds like it's true, <laughs> but in the, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think this is a major player so much as an interesting sticky point. Meh. SS Obergruppenführer Emil Mashu was also specifically called out by Vitkovsky as being something of a mysterious figure. His very high rank and apparent position as overall director of the Research and Development and Patent Authorities, along with his relative obscurity, make him a fascinating figure in the Bell story, at least to Vitkovsky. There was almost no way he didn't know about it, but apparently he disappeared after the war. Exactly what a mysterious Nazi would do. We also can't forget Dr. Kurt Debus, possible designer of the power supply for the Bell, who was also involved in the development of instruments for high-pressure measurement, V2 instrumentation, and high-voltage discharge and measurement technology. Hey, remember earlier when someone tattled to the Gestapo that Richard Kramer wasn't being Nazi enough? The tattletale was none other than Dr. Kurt Debus. Though he might be more familiar to you through a cheeky little manoeuvre the U.S. pulled called Operation Paperclip, where several scientists were brought to the States to work for us. In fact, this rat bastard became the first director of NASA's Launch Operations Center in 1962. Way to go, America. You played yourselves. From what I gather, the Bell mythos comes from Vitkovsky's informant telling him about it, and Vitkovsky supposedly being allowed access to classified documents, such as the post-war testimony of SS Gruppenführer Jakob Sporenberg. Sporenberg apparently spoke of the Bell in his war crimes depositions, and was instrumental in evacuating top personnel, maybe the Bell itself, to Norway before the Soviets got to it in Poland. And to get out of Poland, Witkowski names SS Sturmbannfuhrer Rudolf Schuster as the officer in charge.
the bell was taken out of Poland, it was no stranger to being on the move. It's generally theorized that work and or tests with it began in one of a few places. Loibus, now Lubiusz, Poland, under the Gandal Air Base in Breslau, now Wrocław, Poland, and possibly the aforementioned lab under Charité Hospital in Berlin. And also possibly all of the above, bouncing around as it was developed. In November of 1944, it was said to have moved to the Reise complex, first to the underground lair at Castle Fürstenstein, then to the Wenceslas mine at Ludwigowice, and possibly what was known as the Milkoff complex there, which was either part of the mine which was flooded, or very near and it flooded instead of the mine. I might circle back to this. When Russia rolled into town, they found nothing at the mine, and it's thought that Schuster and Sporenberg coordinated the evacuation of it on a Junkers 390, which was the only one left at the time, painted like a Swedish Air Force plane. The six-engine heavy transport plane could have taken the Bell and possibly SS Gruppenfuhrer Hans Kamla to southern Norway. From there, the Bell melts into the mists, with possible destinations including Japan, Argentina, Antarctica, the Hollow Earth, the future, Dimension X, the warehouse at the end of Raiders of Lost Ark. You get the idea. Witkowski wasn't leaning towards the fascist-friendly Argentina in his book, but doesn't discount it as a possible landing spot. In fact, he even mentions a co-worker who had a friend who saw a 1945 photo of a Junkers 390 on a makeshift jungle landing strip in Uruguay, right next to Argentina. It's known that many Nazis fled and ended up warm and snug under the wing of Juan Perón, speculation has flowed freely about whether the Bell project was continued there or not. If it was a terrible weapon, with the lack of large-scale melting death since World War II, it seems like they didn't get it up and running. If it was a time machine, well, they still lost the war in this timeline. Or will they did have? There's an argument to be made, I guess, that Russia did find it and kept it secret, kept it safe to work on it themselves. This is where you get your tie-ins to red mercury, cold fusion, hot secrets, and look, we already need a kinheit-shaped life preserver. Nineteen forty-five. And as Western armies sweep across Germany, voices crack along the field radios, speaking in English and in Russian. Until finally, those allied in the struggle come together on the River Elbe. For Europe and the world, an unforgettable moment. And if only all had continued to act in the spirit of that moment, what a Europe, what a world might then have emerged. West of the Elbe runs the River Rhine, for centuries the highway, yet the divider. The river of the Goths and Romans, Christians and pagans, free men and slaves. A river with a history of strife, for it runs through the heartland of Europe, the continent so long torn between races and factions that only dreamers like Charlemagne could visualize it as a peaceful unity. But in spite of the bloodshed, most of it so recent, one Europe is at last becoming a fact, born out of the very dragon's teeth of war, a harvest from the seeds of Europe's own destruction. 1945, and the end of yet another European war. And who has won, when in fact all have lost? A war in which more civilians died than fighting men, not in hundreds, but in millions. But they, at least, were spared the aftermath. Much had gone forever, and what was in its place? In the aftermath, but mere existence, 
where an undamaged roof made a palace, a loaf of bread, a banquet. One long lineup with want ever there in the queue. What a Europe to grow old in. What a Europe to grow up in. All right, pump the brakes a little there, Nigel P. Fortiesman. The P doesn't stand for pessimism. Pretty sure it's Peabody. Towns liberated by the Allies celebrate their liberators with joyous parades. But deep down, each smiling face in the crowd hides a storm of sorrow, an onslaught of anguish, a maelstrom of melancholy. For they were all of them aware of just what a bleak, cheerless, callous world they've regained. Woof. So, what do we have here? A lot, (laughs) and a lot of finer details that I didn't even get into, because truthfully, it was like trying to separate overcooked spaghetti to research this. There's so many tangles and angles, I thought I was at a curly-headed mathematician convention. Okay, I'll I'll stop. That, That was a bit much. Let me start where most people start when not accepting the Bell story at face value. Igor Vitkovsky. He is the undisputed originator of Bell knowledge and fervor with Pravda o Vandervatha. All subsequent works on it derive from his initial information on the subject, including Nick Cook's The Hunt for Zero Point and Joseph Farrell's SS Brotherhood of the Bell, all three of which I read and got most of my notes from. Cook, you can argue, brought the Bell mythos into the mainstream, and, of course, it has entered the ancient aliens realm and infinity and beyond. There have been various slap fights in terms of debunking this and such. One of the big arguments for skeptics is that the hinge was actually what was left of an industrial cooling tower. Personally, my journey through the research painted an interesting picture of the hinge, beginning with the impression that it was an imposing, mystical relic deep in the Polish woods, a stark reminder of a nefarious preternatural past. And then I found pictures from other angles. Pictures from sites not interested in fear-mongering or speculation. And it became much more mundane. The area there at Wenceslas Mine had been the site of the Nobel Dynamite AG manufacturing plant, which made ammunition, chemicals, and dynamite for the Third Reich. It also probably supplied the dynamite used for blasting tunnels for the Hresa project. The ruins of this plant are still there. In fact, I read that there's a museum there now. The hinge itself, if you'll recall, stands on a dodecagon-shaped pool. Now that's how Vetkovsky described it, and it almost looks to me like it's on a dinner plate with a drainage hole in the middle. Why would a test rig for flying craft need such a base beneath it? Pictures of other cooling tower frames can be found that look similar, though maybe made of steel and not concrete. It's an interesting sticking point that doesn't entirely convince me of its connection to the bill. A confusing part of this whole region there that I've just been talking about, if I understand correctly, Wenceslas Mine was not part of Project Hrisa, but the nearby underground Milkov complex was. The mine was flooded in 1939, so they say, though it's also been said it was being used for coal and bell experiments, and then flooded on purpose when the Russians were near. And speaking of, I bet you can also safely assume that any scientific documents that couldn't be smuggled away by fleeing Germans would have been destroyed so the Russians didn't get to them, or maybe even that Russians inadvertently destroyed such things in their offensive. Which throws a bit of a spanner in the works when trying to find corroborating evidence. To that end, and this is probably neither here nor there, but the name Rudolf Schuster, who was supposed to be an SS officer, doesn't show up in any officer lists 
I could find. Now, I'm, I'm not really worried about it. I, I don't know if lists are complete and such, especially ones that you can access pretty easily. And Vidkovsky claimed there was an archived record of him he found, yada yada. It, it's not a big deal. I was just able to find the other names he mentioned. Not this one. Meow meow. Farrell, in his book, mentions that Nick Cook, in his book, talked about how Walter Gerlach specialized in gravitation before the war, but never returned to the subject afterwards, which Cook found odd. Farrell goes on to speculate that the reason for this is perhaps that he was frightened into silence based on the sheer fact recounted in Witkowski's work that 62 scientists and technicians supposedly involved in the project were quote-unquote physically liquidated by the SS in order to keep their secrets safe from the enemy. Gerlach did not want the same fate, yet was too high-profile to liquidate, so he kept his gravity-loving mouth shut. So feral things. And even this was rebutted by amateur researcher Simon Gunson on his Nazi Bell Uncovered website. He says, quote, I point out that Gerlach made no reference to the subject during the war either. Farrell apparently ignores the obvious that this absence only corroborates the bell had nothing to do with anti-gravity, end quote. Gunson falls in the camp of the bell being a heavy particle accelerator for the Nazis' nuclear program. Farrell also seems to iterate in his book that not much is known about the SS officer Emil Maggio after the war, that he might have disappeared and continued the project elsewhere, if I understood it correctly. But there are pretty clear records Maggio was sentenced to 16 years in prison for war crimes and served that time. The degree to which he and Witkowski refer to Maggio as enigmatic and mysterious seems a little contrived. Author and skeptic Jason Colavito had an interesting take on Witkowski, saying his ideas are, quote, just a recycled reflection of 1960s fringe claims about Nazi occult science, such as those from Morning of the Magicians, end quote. That book was a pretty far-out tour de force of occult and fringe theories, laying the groundwork for ancient aliens, certain conspiracies, and esotericism. And it also mentions Vril quite a bit. These might be little sticking points, or maybe nitpicking of a different color, but the truth is this. The whole Bell mythos is predicated on whether or not this thing existed. Now, the question is, can we trust Witkowski's claims, which are based on documents he supposedly read and stories he supposedly heard from an unnamed informant? The answer is no. But, there's a but. There's no question he did copious amounts of research and investigation, impressive amounts, which are all included in his book. And that seems very legit. And we get quite a number of anecdotes from various sources, even one from a survivor of the Gross-Rosen concentration camp who talked about tests at Castle Fürstenstein. The only thing that's missing to give this topic a shocking amount of credibility is independent evidence and original documents that Witkowski claims to have been privy to, along with any other hard evidence photos or films from 1945 of the bell. There have been plenty of skeptics over the years who have dunked on Nick Cook and Joseph Farrell for perpetrating some pretty out-there claims, to put it nicely. And I think the works I read of each have their criticisms, which I don't need to get into here. Also, don't get me started on that anecdote in Henry Stevens' book about the bell looking into the past. I heard from a guy that heard from a guy. Ugh. But Witkowski is different, yet still frustrating, and here's why. His dedication to this story and research of obtaining verifiable documents and photos is completely admirable. His writing style is very informative and packed with 
more cited facts than opinions. But I just can't make the leap to believe this thing existed based on his word that someone approached him one day and started telling him all these details about a secret Nazi device and that he saw classified testimony about it, but no one else has or has talked about it. We don't know that this informant exists. We don't know that these documents exist. And if they did, we don't know if Sporenberg was telling the truth or telling disinformation. We don't know if this Kriegsenscheiden was referring to a bell device. Hell, if the bell existed, we don't even know what it was supposed to do. Say what you want about all these tertiary pieces of evidence. It all boils down to this man's word. He's probably not getting rich off all this, but here we are, talking about him in 2019. At least in our circus, he's been relevant for 20 years. One strike against him, I have to say, is the following passage from his book, pretty much in his last paragraph summation. Quote, The Samarangana Sutradhara, a book at least 2,000 years old, said, for example, By means of the power latent in the mercury which sets the driving whirlwind in motion, a man sitting inside may travel a great distance in the sky in a most marvelous manner. End quote. The strike is because not only is that work not even 1,000 years old, let alone two, He's referencing a passage from David Childress's book, Vimana, Flying Machines of the Ancients, which is akin to quoting Giorgio Tsoukalos' book, Hair Today, Hair Tomorrow, Tips for Looking Fly and Getting Honeys. For this one, in which the research definitely took its toll on me, I'm landing on the belief there was no Glocka. Kein Glocka! but I enjoyed Witkowski's work and numerous speculations and scientific theorizing. If such a thing did exist, for shiggles, time travel and anti-gravity are sexy, but I'd probably lean more towards nuclear research being its purpose. Until we get some independent verification of documents, however, I'm afraid for me, it's a death knell for this bell. From the poem Song of the Bell by Friedrich von Schiller. Our bell, her metal voice devoting alone to grave eternal things, shall ever feel, while she is floating, the throbbing touch of time's swift wings. And as her mighty peal sonorous within our ears at last shall die, a lesson she will put before us that all things earthly must go by. Come now, with the rope's whole might, from her dungeon swing the bell, till she rise to heaven's height in the realm of sound to dwell. Pull and lift still more, see her move and soar, joy unto this city bringing, peace shall be her first glad ringing. That's Deglaka. Nazi bell in a mercury-filled, anti-gravity, face-melting nutshell. And now it's time to put on your rubber suits and clamp on those red visors. We're about to get bombarded by puns. Not a lot of people know this, but German scientists were apparently experimenting with plastics a lot during the war. And one who was secretly anti-Nazi developed a system of small pieces of plastic to build with. Unfortunately, he couldn't keep his sentiment secret from the Gestapo. Else, instead of Legos, we might be building with de Blocka. They don't talk about one huge project the Germans were working on, which was taking place on the other side of the Owl Mountains. The scope was enormous, but it was all about losing weight and shedding pounds with 
huge underground fitness complexes connected by tunnels. They never got to finish the giant project called Decresa. <laughs> That'll be puns. Okay. Um, real talk for a second. I'm putting the script away here. So, <laughs> this, this episode has taken me the whole month to put together. Um, obviously, you, you know that. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know. But it's been a while since I put out the last episode, and the reason for it is because I backed myself into a hole with the research uh, on this one. Now, while I had fun doing this episode, and I mean, the, doing the research for it, putting it together and stuff, uh, it's, it's not a sustainable model for how I want this podcast to be. I, I feel bad about putting two out a month. I would love to do this weekly, obviously, like uh, we used to do. But I kind of fell into this trap of wanting things to be so good and so correct and putting on a, a solid production for you that now it takes me a month to put one episode out. And that's, that's not right and it's not good. I mean, from my perspective, that's not how I want it to be. I appreciate your patience above all other things. I, I, I can't tell you how much... I appreciate that you wait on these to come out and still listen. I mean, the fact that you're listening to this, if you know, if you've stuck with me, that's, it's amazing to me. And I, I thank you for that. Uh, and if you're new to this, this, <laughs> this is probably going to be kind of a weird uh, section for you to listen to, but just know that I don't like <laughs> the way I'm doing things. <laughs> it's weird to say that. Uh, I actually think this episode, for me, I, I feel good about this. I hope it turned out well. I'm saying this before, obviously, I, I put it together and everything. I hope you guys liked it. I felt good writing it, making it. The only thing I didn't feel good about was that it took me a month to do it. And that's because I, you know, like I said, I read like three, four books uh, on it, numerous web websites. I, I, <laughs> I went to a library nearby to find this book because it's it's not easy to find. And if you do find it, it's expensive to buy. So. Luckily, a local library had it. I actually went there and uh, uh, took <laughs> took pictures of the pages so that I could have them to reference, bring them home and stuff, which was just completely invaluable. <laughs> but like, that's the level of dedication I, I want to bring to this. But at the same time, I also want to bring a level of efficiency and um, putting it out in a timely manner and getting a consistency going. All these, all these things, I mean, in my mind, it's kind of a giant hurdle with how um, I have set up myself and the trajectory, trajectory of the podcast to go. So know that I'm actively trying to figure out how to preserve the quality, what I believe is quality, of the episode, which includes research uh, recording and sound and production uh, quality. But please know that I, I'm trying to figure out how to cram all that into at least two weeks and then, you know, if possible, weekly from there. The thing that's holding me back, I think, is is the research side of it. When I want to read uh, books on the stuff, uh, if possible, talk to people about it, just get everything I can and synthesize it into a script and then make the production of it. So, the goal is to cut down on the time it takes between episodes and become more consistent with it because I, I know you guys have to be annoyed by waiting for so long because I'm annoyed. I'm really annoyed that, that it takes me this long to put out an episode. And, um, I don't know, maybe I don't need to, to say this. Maybe you guys are like, eh, whatever, as long as we get an episode, it's fine, which would be very kind of you to, to think that way. But I am, committed or, or at least trying to figure out how to get this uh, whole process condensed so I can be more consistent and get this out to you guys. You guys can keep having a, a show to listen to. Um, so that's, I just wanted to, to say that. And I wanted you guys to know that I'm aware of how long these episodes are taking and, and what's going on behind the scenes. Thank you for listening and thanks for sticking with me. I hope you know that I'm working on the show every day. 
and trying to put together the best one I can for you guys. And because I don't want to skimp on research and production or the writing and stuff, I, I hope you find it worth the wait when it takes me a while. And you know what? Without even realizing it, season seven has wound down. This is basically the, uh, the last episode of season seven. Now, there's going to be a bonus episode between this one and the season eight kickoff, uh, which will be a roundtable on the documentary Hellier, which is on uh, Amazon Prime, I, I think. And uh, then we're back to Irish shenanigans and season eight, the Ocho. It's crazy. I <laughs> didn't even realize, didn't even realize that uh, this is how far along the year has come. Uh, but here we are. So. You guys know what to do. Like Facebook, follow Twitter and Instagram, leave a five-star review, subscribe, please, and uh, join the Blurry Photos fan page on Facebook. Don't forget Alien Con, June 21st through the 23rd in Los Angeles. I know I got some uh, uh, Los Angeles fans out there. I've got quite a few West Coast fans, but um, I was talking to uh, Tyrannosaurus Hex the other day and and I was like, hey, you're, you're on the West Coast. And he's like, yeah, not L.A. And I'm like, oh, yeah, the West Coast, pretty big coast. Um, so, you know, if you can make it, I would absolutely love to see you guys there. You can look at the AlienCon information, uh, see if you like what's going on and stuff, and see if you'd be around for the meetup. And like I said, once we get all the dates, I'll send it to you guys as soon as I get them, let you guys know what's going on. So would love to meet you all. Thank you for another great year and exciting times ahead. I've got some more irons in the fire that are pretty hot. So for this episode and season of Blurry Photos, I have been DeFlora. Bis zum nächsten Mal. Mm-hmm.